honor the sacrifice and the memory of those who have passed beyond the river. From the battlefields of France and Flanders, made for our dominion a place amongst the nations of the world. In the war, we must keep the vision of a better future. In the victory over those who seek world domination and human enslavement. We, the people of Canada, look forward to the last step in Confederation. If you have nothing to hide, why hide it? And I think, in general, that represents the thinking of free men everywhere. In World War I, the flag that flew for Canadian soldiers overseas was the Union Jack. This just means telling Quebecers that they can speak in French to their government. You had an option, sir, to say no, and you chose to say yes I... to the old attitudes and the old stories of the Liberal Party. That... The notion of separate but equal has no place in Canada. Sure that same-sex benefits pass. I stand before you today to offer an apology to former students of Indian residential school. As much as possible, stay home. Hello and welcome to Prime Ministers of Canada. I'm your host, Quinn Porter, and today I'll be joined by Brooke Jeffrey, professor of political science and author of two books on the Liberal Party, who knew Pierre Trudeau, to examine his life and premiership. So Brooke, what did Trudeau's life before politics entail? Well, I think that's an interesting question because there's some very important points that shaped his approach to politics, to Canada and so on. His father was a Francophone Quebecer and his mother was of mixed Scottish and French origin. So he was fluently bilingual. He was educated at a Collège Classique. That's a very elitist type private school. It's also a Catholic school. Uh, his French was impeccable. He was uh, a lawyer, first of all. He went to Université de Montréal and uh, got a law degree. He later went to Harvard and got a degree in political economy, which is where he met John Kenneth Galbraith. So he had a very impressive background before he decided to go into politics. And so could you tell us a little more about his battle with uh, Duplessis and Quebec nationalism? Right, well, this of course is the turning point in Quebec history, Canadian history and so on. M Mr. Duplessis was a bit of a, an autocrat and his time in office in Quebec produced a number of clashes uh, with the church and with organized labor. The asbestos strike was uh, famous or infamous for bringing all this to a head. Mr. Trudeau was a political activist of the day and he met up with the head of the labor union, Jean Marchand and another prominent intellectual in Quebec, Gerard Pelletier during the asbestos strike. He wrote a book about it afterwards. It, as I say, shaped the quiet revolution and the start of a modern Quebec. And it also forged with him these lifelong friendships and encouraged him to go to Ottawa and take with him Pelletier and Marchand who became known as the Three Wise Men. And so why did he take Peltier and Marchand? What, what kind of role did they have in Ottawa with Trudeau? Well, they became ministers in his cabinet eventually. In fact, they became ministers before he did. Uh, they were older and had more experience in a variety of areas. But why did they go to Ottawa? They went to Ottawa because Mr. Trudeau had a very clear vision of Canada about the role of ethnic versus civic nationalism and he wrote about this, I should have mentioned it earlier, in a classic work called Federalism and the French Canadians. If you read that book, you know everything you need to know about what he thought 
about how Canada should be the distinct society and not Quebec, how Quebecers could have a role to play in Ottawa, how Canada could become a bilingual country. So he went to Ottawa with his two friends to show that Quebecers, Francophone Quebecers, could play a prominent role in the federal government. And so it was primarily the, uh, the Quebec issue that made him go into politics then? That's right. And so why was Trudeau a federalist? Well, intellectually, it fit with his other values and beliefs. This concept of civic nationalism, meaning that a country is united, its citizens are united because of their values and beliefs, is in contrast to a notion that a country must be homogenous on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, and so on. He saw that ethnic nationalism as dangerous, as old fashioned, as not the way of the future. And so of course it explains everything he did in national politics up to and including his rejection of the Charlottetown and Michelet Accords, which had distinct society in them. And so how did he initially go about winning his seat in 1965? Well, that wasn't really very difficult. He was given one of the safest seats in the country to run in once he decided to join the Liberal Party and run for office. He would never have joined the NDP, even though he was certainly a left-wing liberal, because they had a view on federalism and ethnicity, which was quite different. They believed in deux nations, which is not something that he would have agreed with. And so he became prime minister within a three years of getting his seat. I mean, how did he have such a meteoric rise? Well, obviously competence had something to do with it uh, and personality, I'm sure. But it isn't that meteoric, really. I mean, if you compare him, for example, to someone like Brian Mulroney, who was a labor leader, suddenly became a member of the Conservative Party, the leader of the party and prime minister in less than a year, that, you know, there, there's meteoric and without any relevant experience. Mr. Trudeau, by contrast, first became, as he was elected, the parliamentary secretary to Mr. Pearson, which obviously gave him a leg up. Then he became the justice minister where he performed very well and the famous, the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation, major reform of the justice system. And then in 1968, he ran for the leadership of the party. It wasn't easy. There were many ballots before he eventually won. And of course his opposition, his main opposition was Paul Martin Sr. So you see this playing out later, of course, with Paul Martin Jr. And so how did he eventually win that leadership contest? Well, it was very dramatic. Uh, it went late into the night. Uh, there were people who were quite opposed to him, including one of the few women cabinet ministers, Judy LaMarche. Uh, but eventually it just was a question of the lowest number dropping off the ballot. And uh, I think probably what swung it his way in the end was the, the nature of the times. Uh, you had just had Expo 67, Canada was feeling its oats. We had a culture, we were considered a country that people were looking to. And he was the symbol of that young, dashing, but an intellectual as well. And I think that just appealed. Trudeau mania prevailed in the next election. Yeah. Uh, and so you mentioned that he was a uh, parliamentary secretary to uh, Lester Peterson. I mean, how important was that to his rise? Crucial. It was Mr. Pearson who'd convinced him to run for office. Let's, let's remember that Mr. Trudeau didn't really need to be in politics. And, and it wasn't necessarily his first choice. And it was always true throughout his entire time in office 
that he was there because he was a man on a mission. He had objectives, he had policies he wanted to implement. It's quite different from someone who's simply a career politician. And I think that makes it easier for you to ignore popularity contests. It makes it easier for you to make hard decisions because you don't feel you have to be there. And, and so he's widely recognized as the uh, father of Canadian bilingualism. Uh, what pushed him to pass the Official Languages Act and what legacy does it have on Canada today? An excellent question. Well, of course it was Mr. Pearson who commissioned the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism. When Mr. Trudeau became prime minister, he had to implement the recommendations of that report. It's very significant that he's changed, notice the, re the report is bilingualism and biculturalism. He changed that and made it bilingualism and multiculturalism. That pretty much cemented Canada's modern image in terms of our culture. It also cemented the position of the Liberal Party as the natural governing party of Canada for many generations because immigrants obviously were very happy with the multiculturalism concept. But it made Canada, as Mr. Trudeau once said himself, a distinct society, multicultural but bilingual. And the effect in the public service was to make French uh, an equal official language among public servants. It provided service across the country to individuals looking to the federal government for going to a federal office in the language, the official language of their choice. And although there was obviously resistance in the beginning, I'm from BC, <laughs> I know all about resistance to the Official Language Act originally, but I'm also from BC and fluently bilingual, a point I frequently made. And it was because of Mr. Trudeau that I learned French and many generations after me as well. And so would he have uh, implemented bilingualism without Lester B. Pearson's initial groundwork? Well, I, that's a hypothetical question. I think we can't really answer. I, it certainly fit with his values and beliefs about ensuring that Quebec Francophones felt they were part of Canada. And so moving on, what happened during the October crisis and how did Trudeau respond? Right. Um, that's a sore point with many people. And uh, it touches a nerve with me because I feel it's been badly reported in many places, including in Quebec where I teach. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot to be straightened out here. Um, and again, another thing about this is that it shows how politics is about people. It's not like science. I, I'm not sure we should call it political science. People aren't atoms. They don't uh, react predictably and so on. So here are the cast of characters. Someone called Robert Bourassa was the premier, <laughs> you know, and he just keeps showing up and showing up. In 1985, he visits us again, you see, so it's all connected. So mm -hmm. during the War Measures Act, what happened was that the FLQ obviously kidnapped people and there was a perceived crisis. I know for a fact, having talked both to Mr. Trudeau and other members of the cabinet at the time, that the RCMP had absolutely no idea how significant or widespread this revolt was. There'd been unrest, civil unrest in Quebec for three or four months at that point. Students had rioted and there were strikes at universities and in the streets and so on before this occurred. So the RCMP was not really very helpful in terms of telling the cabinet whether this was a major issue or not. Even so, the cabinet deliberated uh, and considered a variety of options when the premier of Quebec 
wrote a note to Mr. Trudeau requesting that the federal government send in the army. Mr. Trudeau would never have done this if there hadn't been a formal request. And even then they debated for hours before they decided to agree. So it was Mr. Bourassa who wanted the army to come in. And it was apparently because the Quebec police, the QPP were unable to handle the situation. So a lot of the responsibility for what happened afterwards rests on Mr. Bourassa and the QPP because they're the ones who arrested a number of people in the cultural and arts community who had nothing to do with the FLQ and for whom this became a, a cause celebre. And so then after the election campaign of 72, uh, the Liberals got a minority. Um, why did his government collapse in 74? And, and how did he win re-election from a seemingly weakened condition? Well, first of all, he stayed in power from 72 to 74 because the NDP propped him up, of course. They probably regret that later, but that's, that's how it worked. And actually, I don't think they had much choice, really. Um, but it didn't work out well for them. And by 1974, Mr. Druid learned something that perhaps his son will learn soon. Um, and that is that you do need experienced veterans as well as bright new faces who have great ideas to run a campaign and to uh, govern. And by bringing back some of the old guard liberals who had experience, they were able to steer him in a direction that allowed him to produce uh, another majority, which of course set the stage for many other things between 1974 and 1979. So it isn't clear whether they orchestrated their own defeat or not, uh, but it is clear that the resulting election was won with the help of people who were much more expert. Mr. Trudeau was originally an academic and he learned to be a politician. And so it would seem that he's a quite a good Liberal Party leader too then. Well, of course. I, I mean, I think if you, look at the, <laughs> if you look at the time period, he is after all the third longest serving prime minister in Canadian history. There are many Liberals who never knew another leader, but Mr. Trudeau uh, until 1984. And there are many Canadians who can't remember a prime minister before him. And he was there for a long time. So he definitely put an imprint on the party as well as the country. And so we often associate Trudeau with Quebec and uh, nationalism in that sense, but uh, what impact did he have on the international scene? Another excellent question. He was incredibly well regarded internationally, both during his time as prime minister and afterwards. Um, he, in terms of Canada and policy, he's the one who went to China. He's the one who went to Cuba. Uh, Fidel Castro was a pallbearer at his uh, funeral. Um, he opened Canada's uh, relationship with much of the world. He believed in trying to diversify from just being connected to the United States to having multiple partners and multiple multilateral relationships. His role at the UN was significant and the role of Canada. Uh, when he died, uh, there was, uh, I happened to be in Europe at the time at a meeting of the Council of Europe and that's in, Fran in Strasbourg in France. And the magazine Perry Match, which is, I guess, similar to R. McLean's, 
I walked by the, on the street that day and there was a cover and it was a picture of Mr. Trudeau. And there was nothing else on the cover except down at the bottom, Le Mort d'un Géant, the death of a giant. They expected everybody in France to know who that person was just by his picture. That I don't think happened for any other Canadian prime minister. Mr. Pearson got a Nobel Peace Prize, but that's the recognition of a small group of, um, it's, it's hugely impressive, but I think it required the recognition of a small group of political elites. This was something that was quite different. I, as again, I say, I was at the Council of Europe. People came up to me that day and asked where the condolence book was. <laughs> and I, I had not thought about this, but our, the Canadian delegation ran out and got one. Uh, and people just lined up around the corner and down the street to sign that book. Wow. And so is it possible he learned a lot of his uh, international policy from Lester Pearson? Yes, I think that's fair. I, yes, I think that's true. He expanded on it, but that was the base, yes. And so, so what was the uh, impact on the Indigenous communities during Trudeau's time as, as Prime Minister? I don't think... I would not say that there was a significant impact one way or the other really. Um, and it's interesting that his son has decided on that as his Fremont signature. Um, Mr. Trudeau believed in individual rights far more than collective rights. I had this discussion with him a couple of times actually. And he was very concerned about collective rights because of the connection with tribalism, nation states and ethnicity and so on. And it was, of course, in his early years that Mr. Krejcian, as the just as the Indian Affairs Minister, had tried to introduce a white paper, which was roundly rejected, and they went off in a different direction after that. But uh, it was not one of his primary objectives. You know, prime ministers really can only have two or three things that they want to do. They try and do more than that; they'll just end up doing nothing. You have to count on your ministers to handle the portfolios that you're not particularly stressed by. And so why did Trudeau lose election in 1979? Yeah, 79, yes. Well, I think it was simply the end of an era in the sense that a huge amount had happened and he'd been in power for over 10 years. You know, there's a, a, a best before date on, on any politician. Uh, Mr. Clark was new. Uh, the Conservative Party was the old Progressive Conservative Party. It was a perfectly reasonable alternative to the Liberals, unlike, for example, Mr. Harper's new Conservative Party. So uh, it's not surprising, I think, at this point. But it is important to notice that the Liberals won the popular vote 40% to 35%. And that's why they won in 1980. Yeah, I find that fascinating. I mean, how did he remain leader of the opposition and then win an election like a year later? Well, he was planning to step down. He wanted to step down. They, it's just, you know, parties have rules about how, when you have leadership uh, conventions and so on. And it just so happened, it was such a short period of time. What it was, it May 79 to December 79, I think was the Clark period. I remember being at the, it's called the caucus Christmas party all parties have a Christmas party on the hill and they can invite people if they want from outside. And I was there when they discussed the fact that there was about to be a vote and that Mr. Clark couldn't count. And sure enough, they defeated the government. 
So there hadn't been time to be a leadership and they asked him to stay. He, he insisted that the caucus vote and, and say that they wanted him to stay on as leader for the next election. He really didn't want to do it. But when he stayed on and they won, and as I say, it's not surprising given they won the popular vote in 79. And the thing that defeated the Clark government was something called a gas tax, which was hugely unpopular. So it's not surprising the Liberals came back in full force in a majority in 1980, less than a year later. But I remember Mark Lalonde, who was uh, the finance minister under Mr. Trudeau, telling me one time that they decided in 1980 with this majority, it was like they'd had a, a resurrection, a second coming, and they were gonna do everything they possibly could. They were not going to be careful and worry about politics in the political sense, political party sense of the word. They were gonna go for broke and do whatever they could uh, to implement things while they had this second chance. And that's exactly what they did. And so what were the themes and policies in that next term? Well, a lot of it had to do with Canadian nationalism and identity. You know, there were things like the Foreign Investment Review Ag Agency and so on. But the other thing that happened, of course, was <laughs> almost immediately uh, we had we had the uh, referendum. Mr. Levesque was at the end of his term of office. He had promised a referendum before he, the end of his term. He'd almost run out of time on the runway, so he had to have it. And it required Mr. Trudeau to go into Quebec with Mr. Chrétien and talk to Quebecers on the no side of that resolution. Uh, they won quite dramatically, I think, 60-40 uh, for the no side. And it changed what other agenda he might have had because now he had to go back to the constitution. He'd made a promise to Quebecers and his view of that was that changes had to be made at a long-standing level. So everybody knows that the constitutional negotiations of 81, 82 produced a charter of rights and that's hugely important. Canadians to this day see it as one of his major accomplishments. Of course, it, it um, patriated the constitution, it introduced an amending formula. I mean, it's astonishing that, that for over a hundred years, this country had no amending formula in its constitution. But one of the most important things from his point of view was it entrenched official languages in the charter of rights. And that's not an accident. And I point out that only a few, really only a few years later, you had with the collapse of the Meech uh, Lake uh, Accord, you had a new party created in the West, Mr. Mulroney managed to destroy the progressive conservative party. And it produced the bloc in Quebec, but it produced the reform party in Western Canada and Preston Manning, the reform leader, only less than 10 years later, as part of his platform the first time, talked about removing the Official Languages Act from the charter and from, from the constitution. Of course, he didn't know that he couldn't do it, but. The, <laughs> There was a reason to entrench it in the constitution. He was right to do that. And so then what were the, the downfalls of, of Trudeau's tenure? Well, I think the obvious one is Western alienation. And, you know, nobody's perfect. <clears throat> I would never suggest he was perfect. He did a tremendous amount. He changed the way Canadians think about themselves. And I'll just finish up that thought by pointing out that during the 1992 referendum on Charlottetown, he single-handedly defeated that referendum. And 
the newspapers the next day said things like the Trudeau Vision One. Canadians see the country the way he saw it. And that's still true. But in Western Canada, I think there was a sense that the Quebec issue overtook almost everything else. And there's been long-standing Western alienation. I mean, ever, ever since the Great Depression and a number of things that occurred after that, Preston Manning's father, Ernest, was a premier during the Depression who wanted to introduce social credit and so on. It's, it's not new. But Mr. Trudeau was particularly tone deaf on the issue of Western alienation and was never uh, able to breach the divide and encourage people to see Canada, uh, see their role in Canada as being as important. And the National Energy Program, of course, was the final straw. And so was that alienation of Western Canada ever avoidable or was it kind of a predestined thing? Well, that's an, that's an excellent question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. Um, I teach Canadian federalism. And one of the points I make is, and it's not my idea, it comes from elsewhere. Um, when you have a federation, there are reasons why you started to have a federation in the first place. And of course, in our case, it would be Quebec. But in addition to this satisfying the need for a level of autonomy among different ethnic or cultural groups that federalism does, it creates, the, creates these subnational units. We call them provinces. And then they get a life of their own and a culture of their own. And of course, when we created Canada, there was no Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, BC, the, you know, these came later. And so it's possible to have a political culture in one of these subnational units that's different and that wasn't there before. And in the case of Canada, we have the misfortune, I would argue, of having all the oil and gas pretty much in Alberta. Australia has the same thing. It has a state called Western Australia, which is always a thorn in the side of the federal government because of oil and natural gas. So in that sense, it may not have been avoidable. There's always going to be a conflict between people who think the province owns the resources and people like Mr. Trudeau and others at the national level who think Canadians own the resources. It's, it's designed to be a conflict. And so just going back to Quebec politics and federalism, which were at the helm of most of his tenure, I mean, what role did he and, and his government around him play in the independence referendum? And, and why was it a relatively clear result compared to the, to, to the later result? Well, I'm biased, of course, but I, I think he was a tremendous orator, a, a terrific spokesperson for the Federalist cause. And it's interesting to note that Quebecers voted for a separatist, René Lévesque, provincially, but they delivered to Mr. Trudeau in 1980, not just a majority government, but all but one seat from the province. So there was obviously a great deal of respect there. Um, and, and I think he followed through on his promises, but he also said what he thought all the time. He never minced words. You either liked or didn't like what he said, but what he meant what he said. And that's unusual in a politician and people can tell when that's what's happening. When Mr. Krajan had to fight the 85, ref the 95 referendum, the world had changed. The players were different all over the, the board. But I think there was not as much, and I was 
At the time, there was something called Plan A and Plan B. No doubt if you interview somebody about Mr. Krejcian, this will come up. And I was a Plan B person. I wanted to go for broke. I wanted to go into Quebec and fight the good fight and make it abundantly clear why no was the best option. But Mr. Krejcian and the people around him, the Plan A people and, and Quebec politicians of the day who were Federalists, argued that this shouldn't happen that it was a Quebec matter and it should be left to them. They even told Mr. Trudeau, who was still alive at the time, to leave the country rather than be involved in the debate. This was a huge mistake. And that's why the result was closer the second time. And so was the reason the result the first time was such a resounding uh, win for, for federalism, was it because of Trudeau's own popularity? Absolutely, absolutely. And the argument he made. You know, Mr. Bourassa used to talk about le federalisme rentable, which basically means money. If we get money, we're happy in a federal state, and if we don't, we're not. Well, that's no kind of argument to convince people that they want to be part of a larger project. You need more than that. You need values and beliefs. And uh, moving on to a kind of hypothetical, difficult question, but um, what would Trudeau think of his son's time as prime minister? Oh. I don't know that I'm the person to answer that at all. I, you can see in Mr. the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, you can see the influence of his father all the time on those issues. If you think back to the elections and the campaign in 2015 and 2019, he's always been a staunch defender of federalism He's always been firm in his opposition to nationalism. He, in 2015, he wouldn't run for the leadership of the Liberal Party unless everybody agreed that merging with the NDP was not an option here, that, that they were going to be liberals. And part of that had to do with the attitude to Quebec and the fact that distinct society is not an option and so on. Um, a lot of people might wonder about the appointment of a governor general who isn't bilingual. And I think it must have been a very, very difficult decision for this prime minister. I think it, situation and context are everything. Probably in this situation, that was something that could be done and probably will have no future impact. He just finished appointing someone to the Supreme Court who is bilingual despite a, an equally difficult start in life that would have uh, managed to, to convince most people they didn't have time to learn French. So, you know, it, I think in most cases, he's been his father's son on those issues, not all of them. And there are other liberals still around today who try and keep him on the straight and narrow. Um, so Pierre Trudeau, he served an outstanding 15 years as PM. I mean, we, we've touched on it a few times, but what is his main legacy? I think Canada is the distinct society. Canada is a country that is bilingual and multicultural. Canada is built on values of compassion and tolerance and understanding and respect for diversity. It wasn't seen that way before the Second World War. It's a post-war image. Uh, again, going back to when I was in Europe when he died, someone from Switzerland came up to me and said, this was a Swiss politician. You know, we look at Canada as the role model. 
you you think that we in Switzerland have official languages and and of course they do. But you know, their version of official languages is that the cantons that speak German have German as their official language and the cantons that speak French have French as their official language. And there are many French Swiss who don't speak German and, and vice versa. And they don't really integrate and they don't really have any policy about immigration either. It's, it's not the kind of melting pot for the world in a postmodern society that that people view us as, you know, they think our problems are, we may think our problems are huge. They think we're lucky. And so Brooke, where would you rank Trudeau among all the, the Canadian prime ministers? A very good question. I, I'm sure you've seen in McLean's there are rankings and I was one of the people asked to do that one mm -hmm. time with I'm sure many others, very near the top, very near the top. And, you know, everybody will have their preferences but I would say certainly third you know, if, if you have to, if you have to think about the length of service and the number of things accomplished, then I would certainly be willing to put John A. Macdonald and Wilfrid Laurier up there as well. Some people might put w uh, William Lyne Mackenzie King. I don't think I would. Um, he'd be fourth in my book. But if you think about it also, this is the only modern prime minister who's up there. And that's very consistent over time among academics. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, it's been a pleasure.